Um, <laughs> so it's funny. Uh, God's funny. He's got a sense of humor. And so I, I originally, uh, basically I took two teachings and consolidated it into one teaching. Okay, so I had two slides originally um, because I, I, I wanted to do the two weeks on discipleship and two weeks on evangelism. Well, um, the Lord wouldn't have that. Uh, so last service, I literally um, was halfway through the message and we had to stop. I couldn't continue on with the second piece of the teaching because we ran out of time. Uh, so what we'll do now is it'll be three weeks of discipleship, okay? And I'll continue to pray about whether we just do one week of evangelism or we push the outreach back to the next weekend. And I'll communicate that next next weekend. I wasn't planning on uh, doing three teachings for uh, the book of Philemon, but that's that's what the Lord would have. So that's what we're going to do. So this teaching specifically, it's the art of discipleship. And this is focused on the disciple, okay? The second one will be the discipler next week. This one is the disciple. And you'll understand as I dive in. Uh, but before I start explaining and getting into it, uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for this epistle. God, it's, it's crazy what you can do in 25 verses. The, 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 the message that you have uh, for us, Lord, I pray would encourage us, inspire us, challenge us to, to be the disciples that you've called us to be, Lord. And um, if, there's any, if there's any fear or hesitation in any of those areas, God, I pray that you would give us the peace that surpasses all knowledge and uh, understanding, and we would walk in what you've called us to, to walk in. pray that you would teach us in this time. In your name, amen. Okay. So the art of discipleship, uh, this one is um, subtitle, the disciple. Okay, we discussed before last week, got through four verses, uh, but we discussed how Paul is really discipling Philemon through this epistle. He's challenging him. He's going to say so many different things to Philemon, but ultimately his goal is what? that Philemon would receive Onesimus back. Uh, again, I'll paraphrase the story, uh, but essentially what's happened is Philemon uh, had a slave named Onesimus, and Onesimus met Paul in prison. Paul brought Onesimus to the Lord in prison, and now Onesimus is a brother in the faith, and Paul is trying to send Onesimus back to Philemon and he's encouraging Philemon through this letter to receive him back. Why? Because the capital punishment, sorry, the punishment for uh, a slave that not only ran away but stole from you because he stole from Philemon, uh, the scripture indicates, uh, it was capital punishment. So Paul doesn't want his friend Onesimus to be killed by Philemon, though that's what he deserves in that culture. He wants to wants him to receive him back as a dear brother, uh, he'll say later on. But the the point of this is that Philemon would um, receive Onesimus back into his home. Now, real quick, 
If you weren't here last week, uh, hopefully you don't get too lost. But if you weren't, uh, please, please, please grab one of the CDs or watch last week's service online. Um, because this whole series on discipleship and evangelism goes back to the vision and the mission that I believe God has given the leadership of this church for this church. And again, the vision is turn the world right side up. Okay, It's essentially being world changers, changing the world around us. And the mission, how we fulfill the vision is knowing him and making him known through the word and discipleship. Okay, so we're going, uh, we're going to focus on the discipleship piece first and then um, making him known through the word, making him known through evangelism second, so that after we do the evangelism, whether it's one or two teachings, um, then we'll do the outreach with the door hangers. We'll be able to go around the community and use those door hangers as a tool to share the gospel with people, but also invite them to our Christmas Eve service. Okay, uh, so we already ordered the door hangers. Uh, they should be here soon. Uh, but just to lay that out there, it all connects. Because if you weren't here last week, you're like, dude, what are we doing in Philemon? I thought we were going through Matthew. It's like you missed a lot if you weren't here last week. Because um, this all connects. So please, please, please grab the CD or watch the sermon. Sorry, listen to the sermon online so that you understand uh, why we're going through this and um, what's going on in the church and all those different things. But again, specifically, this teaching, the art of discipleship, the disciple. Now, Paul, we discussed how he's discipling Philemon through this epistle. Um, there's also a reality that God had placed Onesimus in Paul's life for him to disciple as well. Uh, we know that Paul brought Onesimus to the Lord. So these were the two guys in Paul's life that God had placed for him to disciple. And when you think about who these guys were, it's really interesting. These guys, they were complete opposites. Philemon is likely a wealthy man because he has slaves and he's uh, likely the leader of this church that's in his house. We discussed how there's this church in his house. You see that in Philemon uh, verse 2. So Philemon, he's a leader in the church, knows the Lord, growing in the Lord. He has this church in his house. He's saved, okay, uh, a man probably of wealth because of the slave thing. And then you have Onesimus. And who's Onesimus? He's a runaway slave and a thief. Okay? And before Paul met him, he wasn't saved. So you got a, a leader in the church, a wealthy leader in the church, and then you got a runaway slave criminal. Okay? These are the two guys that God has Paul disciple. These guys are like complete opposites, right? These guys are very different from each other. See, you never know who God's going to bring into your life for you to disciple. He might bring one person that's very much like you and another person that's completely different from you. Now, many people that are engaged in ministry on some level, not that you're uh, all called to full-time ministry, um, but we've discussed in the past how we're all called to be ministers of the gospel. Every single one of us. Okay, And that doesn't mean that you're supposed to quit your uh, secular job and 
go be a missionary in Africa. That's not what that means necessarily, but we're called to be ministers, even if it's in our own home, because it starts in our own home. But follow me here. Uh, God will bring different people into our lives. And we might have this idea or this concept in our minds that God has called me to this specific people group. God has called me to be a minister of youth. I know that God's called me to be a minister of, of young adults. Uh, God has called me to be a, a minister of the elderly. And he's put on my heart to, to go around to convalescent homes. God, he's put it on my heart and he's given me a heart for uh, ministry for people that struggle with addiction. Now, so often you'll find people that, hey, I have a heart for this specific demographic or this specific age group. But we can't get bound to that and we can't put God in a box with that. I have we have youth ministers, right? We have a high school pastor, a youth pastor. But that doesn't mean that they can only minister to the youth and to the high schoolers. We have a couples ministry, but that doesn't mean that Tom and Francis can only minister to people that are couples. Okay, are you a couple? Oh, you're not. Sorry. I can't talk about Jesus with you. It's like, that sounds ridiculous, right? But sometimes we can fall into that. We can't be bound by the specific demographic that God may call us to. If I said, hey, I can only minister to people that have um, an addictive past, that have struggled with addiction, because that's where I was and that's how I came to know the Lord. And I believe that, hey, I can help people that have that past because I've overcome those things by the strength of the Lord. And, and that's my money spot and that's who I can minister to. If I said that was my only ministry, I wouldn't be speaking to any of you, you know, very few of you, right? Only some of you. God often brings people in my life that don't have that background, that have never struggled with that, that grew up in the church and have had a pretty good relationship with the Lord most of their lives. God brings all types of people into my life. Now, the point of it is to to, to be open-minded and say, hey, God might bring you a, a criminal runaway slave or he might bring you a, a wealthy man that leads a church in his house. He could bring you any types of of people and we just have to be open to, hey, whoever God brings me, I'm going to be faithful to invest my whole heart into them. Now, we discussed uh, the purpose uh, of for Paul in this epistle, the reason why he's discipling Philemon, the specific goal he has for him, what he's trying to get out of him, what he's trying to accomplish in this epistle. And remember, we talked about how he is trying to accomplish um, the sheer fact that that Onesimus survives. He's not killed by Philemon and Philemon receives him into his home. That's the practical, right? He's trying to uh, exhort Philemon to receive Onesimus back. But that's that's the practical. That's the tangible. I'll tell you that it goes a lot deeper than that. It's not just the physical act of Philemon receiving Onesimus back. Paul's trying to produce a specific character quality in Philemon. He wants him specifically to grow in grace. He doesn't just want him to have grace on Onesimus. He wants him to grow in grace. There's a specific character quality that he's focusing in on. See, 
Paul wants Philemon to grow in grace just as Paul has grown in grace. Because there's something really interesting about this epistle. Paul is not asking Philemon to do something that he hasn't done already. Paul has been been discipled by the Lord and he has grown in grace and it actually connects specifically to this epistle, the very thing that God grew him in. And I'm being vague for a reason. We're going to talk about it a little more as we get into it and we, we really hit on it. See, Paul's asking Philemon to receive someone that he's probably very bitter at, that he has resentment towards. If, if you had a slave, and I know none of us have slaves, but if you had somebody living in your house that stole from you and ran away, that'd probably upset you, right? Get you a little upset, yeah? So Philemon, he has every right to have something against Onesimus, but he's saying receive him back, forgive him, have grace towards him. Because God taught Paul the same thing. When you look at Acts 15, don't go there now, we'll look at it later. Paul wanted nothing to do with John Mark because he abandoned him. He wanted nothing to do with him. And that's why the split happened between Paul and Barnabas. But we see later on that Paul does receive John Mark. And he says that he's useful for ministry. So the only way that Paul's able to write this epistle is through the sheer fact that God has already walked him through a similar situation. And now he's able to invest in Philemon from a place of experience. Hey, I know what it's like to have resentment towards someone and want nothing to do with them and not receive them and not take them with you. But I'm telling you from a place of experience, that's not the way of the Lord. And I want you to grow in grace and be forgiving towards Onesimus. So, we see here, there's going to be one verse that we mainly focus on, and then we'll go through uh, some others. We'll mainly be in Philemon verse 5. And we're going to see that Paul starts this epistle off by commending Philemon. He's encouraging him, and he's not just trying to butter him up. These are facts about Philemon. This is, this is truth about him and character qualities that Paul saw in Philemon's life and... As we look at these three character qualities in this teaching, we're going to see what it takes to be a disciple. And that's really not a lot. And these three things are the character qualities that we're to look for in someone that we're called to invest into. But there are also three character qualities that we're called to have ourselves because we're called to be disciples that make disciples. We have to be disciples before we can make disciples, right? So we're going to look at this text and we're going to specifically point out these three things. What are we looking for in a disciple? What is God looking for in a disciple? What is God looking for in us? And what should we be looking for in those that God brings into our lives for us to invest into? If you look at Philemon, verse 5, says, hearing of your love, sorry, let me read verse 4 real quick. I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. He's speaking to Philemon, okay? Hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Look at this. Paul says he's hearing about Paul's love 
and faith which he has towards Jesus and towards all the saints. Hearing of your love, dot, 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 toward the Lord Jesus. The disciple should, and every point will start off with that. The disciple should, okay? You just have to enter that in, though, because it's not going to be up here. The disciple should be a lover of Jesus. See, that's what Paul is saying here. I hear of your love toward Jesus. The disciple should be a lover of Jesus. It starts there. You can't disciple somebody if they don't love Jesus. You can't just walk into somebody's life and they have no love or no relationship with the Lord. You can't disciple someone that's in that place. They need to know the Lord first. They need to have to have a love for the Lord first. That's just the basics. That's the basics. And Jesus, he communicates that in Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 29 to 31. A scribe comes to him and says, hey, um, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, A disciple, someone that God brings into our lives, they have to at least have this. To love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we know we're growing in love, but they have to have that basic foundation of love toward Jesus. Now this love, this love looked like something. And we know that Paul and Philemon had this relationship and Paul is hearing about the love that Philemon has toward Jesus. And for Paul to say that he has this love toward Jesus, that means something. That's not just this emotional, I love the Lord. There's emotions connected, but Paul is the Paul that defined what love is in the Bible. And Paul defined it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That whole chapter is about what love actually looks like. So this is the type of love that Paul's referring to. The type of love that he hears that Philemon has. This love, it's described there and elsewhere. This love towards the Lord is a, is a sacrificial love. Because love is sacrificial. If you look at Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and again, this is just the basics. This is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, anyone, anyone means anyone, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So this love towards Jesus looks like denying ourself. It looks like picking up our cross daily. It looks like, it looks like losing our life and gaining or finding our life in Jesus Christ. See, this type of love Paul set the perfect example for. If you look at Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 8, 
Uh, to give you some context, in that chapter, basically what Paul is doing here is he's listing all his accolades before he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And he talks about how he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He says, concerning the law, he's blameless. He says, this is who I was in my own strength. And then look what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul lost everything. He denied everything because he recognized that the knowledge, the intimacy gained with Christ was worth losing everything. It was worth denying everything. And it wasn't until he lost his identity being all those things that he listed previously in that chapter, it wasn't until he chose to lose those things that he really understood the magnificence of this intimacy that was gained through loving the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this, what does this look like? What does this losing all or forsaking all look like see for paul it was it was his identity and his religiosity and everything that he was wrapped up in before he came to know the lord a persecutor of christians and and whatnot but jesus describes it in luke chapter 14 what this love is supposed to look like what this denial of self for the pursuit of jesus is supposed to look like in luke chapter 14 This is a a text that I think we all like cringe at when we read. In Luke chapter 14, verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute, what? Why would Jesus tell us to hate our family? Isn't Jesus about love? Yes, he's about love. He's not saying you should hate your family to hate your family. He's saying that your love for me should be so great that in comparison, your love for your family looks like hate. It's just got to be up here, right? And we've discussed this before. If we're not loving Christ the way we should, then we're not loving our family the way we should. It starts with loving God. We can't love our family if we're not loving the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So he says this love, this is that agape love, this is that unconditional self-sacrificial love that I'm calling you to, and this love for me has to be incomparable. It can't compare to your love for any other thing. Because again, it's not until we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we're even able to love our neighbor as ourself. And remember, Jesus said that those are the two greatest commandments. And he reiterates this in other words in John chapter 21, this conversation that Jesus has with Peter. Now, Peter had just denied the Lord three times. And there's a lot to this text. I'm just making a point. Peter had denied the Lord three times. Okay. And now he's back doing what he always knew to do. He's fishing in this text. This is after the resurrection. It's like, wait a minute. Peter 
is probably thinking, I denied the Lord three times. There's no way he can use me for ministry again. I'm just going to go back and do what I've always done. And Jesus has this encounter with them. Peter jumps off the boat, swims towards Jesus, and they have this conversation. And look what he says in John chapter 21, picking it up in verse 15. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So not only can we truly love people based on our love for the Lord. Again, we have to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength before we can love our neighbor as ourselves. If we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves, then we're not truly loving the Lord. That's what he's saying to Peter. If you're not tending my sheep, In other words, don't tell me you love me if you're not tending my sheep. Your love for me, Peter, this is a direction. It's going to be expressed through the fact of you and the action of you tending to my sheep, loving on my sheep. And that's the call really to all of us. Yes, we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we're also called to love our neighbor as ourself. That's expressed through tending to his flock, tending to his people, taking care of his people, feeding his people. That's not just physically, but that's spiritually as well. Because Jesus said this in John chapter 13, verse 35, By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. See, love love is the root and the goal of discipleship. It starts with being rooted, abiding in the love of Christ, and only when we're abiding and rooted in the love of Christ will true, sincere, biblical love be portrayed and displayed in our lives. It starts with a love for the Lord, but he's trying to get us to that place of love. That's the true sign of a mature disciple as they look like love. Jesus said it. Hey, you look like love when you know me. And all will know that you are my disciples. The world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Picking it back up in Philemon, sorry, verse 5. Philemon, verse 5. <clears throat> He says, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Look at that. Not only a faith toward Jesus, or sorry, not only a love toward Jesus, but also a faith toward Jesus. Philemon had faith toward Jesus. That's the second point. A disciple should have faith toward Jesus. A disciple must have faith in Jesus. You can't disciple someone if they don't believe in Jesus. If they don't have faith in Jesus, it's not going to do any good. Okay, You speaking spiritual things to a carnal person, it says the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, they don't get it. They don't comprehend. 
You can invest the word into them, but until they have faith in the Lord, it's really not going to do you much good. But remember, this faith, this isn't just a, I believe, this is a biblical faith. The Bible defines what faith is in several passages, but Jesus, he says it like this in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verse 29, Jesus says, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Okay, there's two parts to this. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. What he's saying here, the work of God is the uh, reality that you believe in the one that he sent, that you believe in the work that he accomplished on the cross. It starts there. It starts with believing the Lord Jesus Christ, that only him and through him alone that you can be saved from your sins. But there's also this reality that it takes work to continue in faith. What do I mean? It doesn't just end with an altar call. It doesn't just end with a prayer that, hey, God, I believe in you. I confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that he died and rose again. That's where it starts. But it does take work to continue in our faith. True faith takes work. And this isn't a a, a salvation thing. This is a maturity thing. It's 2 Peter chapter 1 Uh, Verse 5, he says, But giving all diligence, add to your faith. Giving all diligence, add to your faith. Yes, you have faith, but we're not called to just stay there in that surface level of faith. We're called to add to our faith. Giving all diligence, add to our faith. That means it takes effort, it takes energy to add to our faith. Well, how do we add to our faith? There's several ways, but one way I want to focus on, if we consider how faith is produced in our lives, where does faith come from? It's Romans chapter 10, verse 17, says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So for me to add to my faith, I have to be in the word of God. I have to pursue him in his word. I have to seek understanding of his word. I have to dive deep into his word. If I want to add to my faith and I want to, I want to, I want to grow in my faith. It's a diligent pursuit of the Lord in his word. Paul says it like this. Sorry. Don't know if Paul wrote Hebrews. We don't know that. Could have been a few different people. Um, the author of Hebrews chapter five, he says this. Now he's speaking to, um, to a, a, a group of people, a church that was a little legalistic. That's why it's called the Hebrews. They were actually Hebrews at this point in their faith. They should know the deep things of God. And look at what he says. He encourages them or exhorts them. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the world of righteousness. For he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. 
the author of Hebrews is saying, hey, yeah, we're called to start off as babes in the faith. We're all babes and everybody knows that babies need milk, but you can't just stay there. You got to get past the milk and start eating meat. We're talking about spiritual things, but think about this practically. What if you were 40 years old and you still looked like a baby? If you were 50 years old and you still looked like a baby. If Benjamin Button walked in here right now, that would kind of throw you off, right? Like, dude, you're like 60 years old and you're a baby. Like, what's the deal with that? Like, wait a minute. You should, you should be grown. Like, you should be bigger. Um, what's the problem? He's like, Benjamin's like, uh, yeah, I'm just on this all milk diet. I've just been drinking milk forever. But that's how we are spiritually. If we just keep drinking milk, we're just going to stay babes in the faith. And that's okay for a time. But God calls us from being milk drinkers to meat eaters. If we want to grow, we got to eat meat. It's funny, this morning, uh, Luke and Matthew came with me to, to the gym and we got, we got a good workout in. Uh, it was, it was fun. Um, but regardless of how hard we work out in the gym, they know, I know, if I don't eat meat, if I don't put protein into my body, I'm not gonna grow. I can work out all day long, but if I don't put the right things in my body, growth isn't going to happen. And it's so interesting that the author of Hebrews, we know this from science, that to grow muscle, to build muscle, it takes protein, right? But the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5, he understands this on a spiritual level. If you want to grow spiritually, you got to eat the meat of the word. You got to dive deep. It's not just reading the scriptures at surface level. It's no, I'm engaging my mind. I'm asking the Lord questions. God, Holy Spirit, teach me. What do these things mean? And maybe I ask a Christian brother or a Christian sister in the faith. Maybe I look into a commentary, but I don't just sit with, oh yeah, I read my devotions this chapter this morning. I walked away not knowing what I read. James talks about that. You look in a mirror, you walk away, you forget what you look like. It's like, no, we're supposed to engage in that. We're supposed to look intently at it and meditate on it. Chew on it. Like it's a piece of beef jerky or something. You guys like beef jerky? Yeah? Some of you? Yeah. It's like, think about like the word of God, uh, uh, liken it to that. It's like, no, I'm, it's going to take me a while to chew on this. I'm not just going to walk away from it. I'm not just going to take a sip and I'm done. No, I'm going to chew on this. It's, it's chewy. It's going to take a little while to completely understand what this is saying. And the reality of it is that we'll be chewing on this stuff the rest of our lives. But we have to have that heart to chew, to eat the meat. Because if we're not eating the meat, we're not going to be able to serve the meat. We're not going to be able to deliver that meat to others, the deep things of God. And that's what he's calling all of us to do. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're newer in the faith and you're drinking milk, that's completely fine. Just don't drink milk forever. Get to that place eventually where you're ready to chew on some jerky. You know, really think about these things. Because when we're in the word, when we're diving deep into the word, that's when transformation happens. It's Romans chapter 12. Verses 1 to 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How are our minds transformed? How are they renewed? It's the, it's the word of God. It's diving deep in the word of God because it changes changes our perspective. It changes the way we think about things. And ultimately, that changes the way that we live. That's where transformation happens. We're only going to transform as deep as we're willing to go. The deeper we dive, the more we'll grow. The more we'll transform. Picking it back up in Philemon. Verse 5, hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Not only does Philemon have faith toward Jesus, he has faith toward the saints. Third point, have faith toward the saints. Have faith toward the saints. Now, this faith toward the saints, it starts with a faith toward Jesus, but there's also the reality, and I don't think we think about this enough, that Jesus has faith in us. You ever think about Jesus has faith in us. He be, like we believe in Jesus, but he believes in us. It's first Timothy chapter one, first Timothy chapter one, verse 12, Paul writing again, It says, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Jesus had faith in Paul, and that's why he put him into the ministry. And look what he says after these verses. Verse 13, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, this is who I was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent man. But Christ had faith in me. He saw who I was and he saw who I was going to become. And that's why he encountered me on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. He didn't see me as the man that I was. He saw who I was going to become. He had faith in me. So it starts with knowing that Christ has faith in us and we have faith in him. But through that faith, we can have faith in the saints. A disciple, he's got to have faith in the saints. He's got to have faith in the church. You hear this so many times. People will say, yeah, I love the Lord. I have a relationship with the Lord, but I don't go to church. I don't like the church. And it's like, hmm. That's that's not really the faith that the Lord is talking about because we're not called to do this Christian walk on our own. We're called to do it with a body of believers because we're we're weak and we need help and we have problems and we struggle with things. And if I don't have somebody to bounce things off of and talk to about things, then what am I doing? Isolating? The Bible says that the man who seeks isolation, uh, uh, seeks isolation um, really goes against all wisdom. That's what Proverbs says. So this faith towards the saints, it looks like engaging in fellowship. Specifically, I'll ask the question, what kind of faith does this look like? What kind of faith are we to have in man? Because it's hard to have faith in man. And the Bible talks about, hey, don't trust in man. Don't put your faith in man. That's not the kind of faith that I'm talking about. Follow me. It's Galatians chapter 5, 
verse 16. Galatians 5.16. He says, this kind of faith. This kind of faith. Verse 5, 6, sorry. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. This kind of faith. A faith that works through love. Follow me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, love believes all things. Love believes all things. What does that mean? Does that mean I believe anything anyone ever tells me? Absolutely not. If you tell me some ridiculous story, I'm probably not going to believe it. But that's not the love that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 or Galatians chapter 5 verse 6. This love believes all things is connected to the individual. Meaning that I believe in you. I believe in the individual. I believe that they're going to become what God has called them to become. Because my belief in them is not rooted in who they are. It's rooted in the God that lives inside of them. I have faith in them because I believe in the God that lives inside of him. And I believe the promises that God has made that lives inside of them. Those promises, including Philippians chapter one, verse six, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. I believe Not because this person brings all these gifts or talents or strikes to the table that they're going to become what God's called them to become. Love believes all things. I believe in them because I believe in the God that's in them. And I believe in his promise that he is going to ultimately perfect them. That he ultimately is going to transform them into the image of Christ. So I have faith in all of you because of the God that lives inside of you. You might be a wretch. You might do all kinds of crazy stuff outside of this church. And I might find out about some of those things. Sometimes I do and you never know about it. But I have faith in you. Not because of what you do or what you don't do, but because of the God that lives inside of you. Love believes all things. I believe that you will become all that God has called you to become. This is the type of faith that Philemon has towards the saints. He believes in them because he believes in the God that lives in them. Back to Philemon. We're just going to wrap it up. I know it's been one verse the whole time, and that's... This is why I couldn't do two teachings today. (laughs) Um, So let me read through this uh, real quick, and I'm going to hit on it a lot next week, okay? Um, But just reading through this real quick. Verse 6, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, so he's building them up right now. We'll talk about this next week more because he's going to challenge them. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such as one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. 
I am sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart whom I wish to keep with me that on your behalf, he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the spirit. It's interesting here. He says, don't receive him back as a slave, but as a brother. Remember what we talked about in verse 5? He has faith towards the saints. Paul is going off of that. You have faith towards the saints, now he's a saint. So you have to believe in him the same way you do about the other saints, that God's going to complete that work in him. You have faith in him because you believe in the God that's in him. Paul's kind of like, he's not manipulating, he's guiding him. He's like, if this is true, then... This is true, okay? You have faith toward the saints. Now he's a saint. He's a brother. You have to have faith in him. Look what he says, verse 17. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Look what Paul says in verse 17, and this is kind of the emphasis of the closing. Um, He says, receive him as you would me. Now, this is the part which I mentioned in the beginning. What Paul's asking Philemon to do is something that God has already walked Paul through. See, Paul had to walk through this time of not being very gracious with John Mark only to receive him later. And let me point you to the scripture so that you understand what I'm saying. In Acts chapter 15, in Acts chapter 15, uh, Paul and Barnabas just got done with this very fruitful missionary journey. Lots of Gentiles getting saved. They have this issue with Judaizers and the church and legalism that's being uh, influential in the church. And they come to this conclusion. Now, when they come to this conclusion, they get ready to go back out on another missionary journey. And that's where we pick up in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. It says, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now, Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. So Barnabas wants John Mark. Look what happens. Verse 38. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So Barnabas is saying, hey, let's bring John Mark along with us too to help us with the missionary journey. And Paul's like, are you serious? Last time we brought him with us, he bailed out on us. When things got tougher, whatever reason, John Mark decided to to dip and he wasn't with us. Why would we trust him again to come and be a part of this missionary journey as if he changed or something? No, Barnabas, I'm not going if you bring John Mark. And look what happens. This is where the division happens. Verse 39, then the condition became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So this is where the split happens. It happens all over John Mark. Barnabas goes with John Mark. Uh, Paul's like, all right, I need someone. So I'm taking Silas with me. And there's this division. 
In this moment, Paul's not being very gracious to John Mark. Not very forgiving, right? But we see later on in Scripture, God taught him this very valuable lesson. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, this is believed by many uh, to be the last epistle that Paul wrote. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 11, it says, Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So we see later on in Paul's life, he grew in grace. The very person that he wanted nothing to do with, the very person that he was, if you will, bitter at because he bailed out on him. He's now using him for ministry and he sees him as useful. God had grown Paul in grace. Now Paul's communicating from a place of moral authority to Philemon. Hey, I know what it's like to be bitter at someone and not want to receive them. Okay, but I'm telling you, that's not the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord is forgiveness. The way of the Lord is love. The way of the Lord is grace. Receive him with open arms. Be gracious with him. Grow, learn from my mistakes. Okay, but the reality of it is, is Paul can't, disciple Philemon in this area if he hasn't grown in this area. If that situation doesn't happen in Acts chapter 15, if Paul doesn't grow in grace, and I don't know if it's this specific circumstance or another way that God had taught Paul through grace, but looking at this, Paul can't teach Philemon to grow in grace if he hadn't grown in grace. See, Paul can only take Philemon as far as he's gone. He can only teach Philemon what God has taught you. That's the same way for us. It's the same idea for us. I can only take you as far as I've gone. I can only teach you what God has taught me. I can't teach you what God hasn't taught me or what he's going to teach me. Same goes for the people we invest in. We can only take them as far as we've gone ourselves. So then there's the reality posing the question, if we can only take people as far as we've gone, how far are we willing to go? How deep are we willing to dive into the world? Word, how, how far are we willing to take our faith? Because it's only there that we can bring others alongside and invest in them the same way that God has invested in us. And that's where Paul's coming from. He's not asking them asking Philemon to do something that he hasn't done. He's trying to take him to the place that God has already taken him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this epistle, God, and so much in here. Lord, we thank you for for the time that you've given us. And God, I pray that we would... um, uh, chew on these things, God, and we we would really evaluate in our lives if um, if we're the type type of disciples that you're looking for. Not that we bring so much to the table because we know it's not about that, but the simple things of of loving you, having faith towards you, and having faith toward the saints, God. If we can if we can have those things and in, in that willing heart, you can do so much with it, Lord. And I pray that you would bring people into our lives that that have these these simple character qualities, God. We would start from there, and we would understand that all these things you want to to grow us in love towards you faith towards you and and faith towards the saints there's room for growth in each of our lives so i pray that you would help us grow in your name amen